When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. And today I'm delighted to welcome back Dr. Louis Fatui, an author and researcher in Islamic studies and comparative religion. You are most welcome, sir. Assalamu alaikum. Alaikum assalam. Thank you very much, Paul, for inviting me back. It's always a privilege. It's, a, it's a great to have you back, actually. Um, for those who don't know, um, Louis is originally from Baghdad, Iraq. He reverted from Christianity to Islam in his early 20s. He has a PhD from Durham University in the UK. He has published extensively on Islamic studies and is particularly interested in comparing historical accounts in the Quran with their counterparts in Jewish, Christian and other sources. He is also interested in comparative Abrahamic religions in general, Tafsir, that's Quranic exegesis, the historical Jesus and Sufism. Now, today, we're going to be looking at a very momentous uh, event, momentous question, series of uh, issues. What is the root cause of the ongoing Israeli war on the people of Gaza? Um, how did this come about? And Dr. Louis locates the roots of the current situation in America's self-image as a chosen, exceptional redeemer nation, which he argues is borrowed from the Hebrew Bible, having been modeled on the history of the Israelites. American exceptionalism has been the main driving force behind the creation of Israel in Palestine. America sees Israel as a confirmation of its own self-identity. It's a really important point that you make, I think. Dr. Louis argues that American exceptionalism is not only a supremacist ideology, but the most dangerous ideology in the world. So incredibly strong words there and a fascinating subject. I'm very grateful for you coming to share your insights and your knowledge about this. So over to you, sir. Thank you, Paul. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Wa salatu wa salamu ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam taslim. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Obviously, we all live in those very difficult times um watching every day the news the ongoing genocide in palestine 
and uh, listening to political analysts, commentators, and um, it's just natural and normal that the focus is on the political situation, um, geopolitical um, circumstances, why America supports Israel, Israel being at the heart of the uh, uh, Arab countries uh, in the Middle East, close to uh, natural resources, all of that true, all of that correct. But actually, this is only a description of uh, the, a later development uh, in the uh, history of the relationship between Israel and the West in, in general, but America more specifically. So what I'm going to say today isn't um, does not dismiss or refute in any way that uh, the fact that Israel is a political and strategic partner uh, to uh, of America and other Western clans of America uh, in the region, but it's actually also uh, the the origin of this relationship uh, it goes further back at times when those geopolitical circumstances did not exist. So you can't actually interpret what's happening and where we are today, um, you know, in terms of the relationship um, uh, between uh, America and Israel, etc., by just thinking of uh, where we, you know, but looking at the world today. You can't do that. Uh, and I'm not a political analyst, and a lot of people would do a better, much better job analyzing what's going on today. I'm a historian, theologian, and I look at things historically, and what I'm interested in always is the background, how things develop. And I always believe that history is what I call is the interpretation of the present. Without history, you can't really often understand what's going on. And um, we live in a world of social media and social media, one of the disadvantages of social media is that it focuses um, one's attention on the now and today. Mm -hmm. Often you lose the trend and you lose you lose history in the uh, course of doing that. So that's what I'm going to do today. Hopefully, go back to the origin and look at the um, kind of root cause of the problem that we, the whole world have today, called Israel. Yeah. It's not yeah. a problem uh, for the Muslims, for the Arabs, for Palestinians. That's not true. Uh, and I'll get to this later, and I'll explain why it's causing harm to other countries, to the world at large. To locate the source and the origin of this particular issue, uh, we can't go back uh, to 2000 years back or whatever, over 2000 when the Jews were in Palestine. Uh, that's too far, that's not gonna give us actually the answer because America did not exist. And the answer isn't either found in um, the uh, 20th century where, when the nation of Israel, the state of Israel was, was formed. Uh, actually, the origin uh, of this special relationship, special position that Israel has come to have, uh, goes back uh, uh, to the 17th century. And it doesn't go back to Palestine, the Holy Land, no. It goes back uh, to the new land of America, or what was new to the Europeans, mm. the settlers who moved there. Um, and that's where I'm going to trace the origin even of Zionism, uh, this political uh, concept. And the, 
And uh, what I will show is that this kind of the original settlers of America developed and modeled a self-image uh, on the biblical image of the Israelites being the chosen people of God. And we ended up with this uh, self-image, uh, some mm. would call it mythical. For me, mythical is not a good enough sufficient description because mythical can be benign, can be harmless. Mm. So it's not, myth, it's not a myth, it's a supremacy. It's a supremacist ideology. And the supremacist ideology has only one connotation, harm. It's very harmful. It's very detrimental. And, um, and that's what it is. Mm. Another thing is that, obviously, supremacy, when you talk supremacy, um, America or su American supremacy is not the only supremacy. The concept does exist, and there are various forms of it, often white supremacist ideologies. But America's American supremacy, uh, which is usually referred to as American exceptionalism, is far more dangerous, and I will explain why. And I'm not going to speculate on that. I am going to talk history. So right. somebody okay. check what I'm saying, they can always check the facts I am going to quote here. Right. What is American exceptionalism? Just before we start, exceptional uh, America is not only um, distinct America, different America, unique America. It is. It means the best that we have, mm. the best that can ever uh, yeah. and, they, and they taught this in schools. You, you talk to Americans, particularly older Americans uh, as well. I'm not sure about what's going on at this moment in American schools. Maybe it's the same, but they were certainly were taught uh, 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 just that, that they were unique, special. They were better than any other nation in the world. I mean, it really was taught uh, throughout the American education system. It's quite extraordinary, really. It is completely, it's part of the self-image, and I'll give more details about that. And before I start... Um, just a little bit of clarification um, and explanation of the term supremacy, because um, we live in a world where we all always um, talk about racism. That's a very common word. Um, and then there's this word supremacy. And I want to either these two words often are used interchangeably, but actually there is a subtle kind of but important difference between the two. Mm -hmm. Racism, the term racism usually focuses on the uh, on the target of that discrimination. So you would say anti-Semitism, which means people who actually discriminate against the Jewish people. You would say Islamophobia, people who then discriminate against Muslims, um, those who did the racism against black people. So these are racism. Always you talk about racism thinking of the victims uh, of this discrimination. Supremacy, it work, works the other way around. Its focus is the people who have this self-belief that they are superior to others. As a result, the others are othered, mm. but by implication, indirectly, the focus is actually uh, on the supremacist. Uh, if somebody is, uh, think of them um, as being superior, then by implication, they're looking down at the others, but their focuses are not the other. They are just so interested in that ego, uh, mm. that they don't care as much about their victims. They're really working on themselves to try and look as good as they can to themselves and to people who think likewise. 
obviously there are lots of we live actually currently there are lots of um far-right supremacist um ideologies parties even in europe um gaining access to power which makes them harmful far more harmful uh, than just being some marginal movement somewhere they started to coordinate at times cross countries in europe we see this for instance but obviously they're probably the most famous um uh, supremacist group and uh, that um we all know of is the Ku Klux Klan uh, the KKK and I'm going to mention something quickly about this because today we look at it as a fringe group uh, just and indeed there are only several the future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly but then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about that's why we've created the hefty renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials to participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Thousands of members now left of the KKK. But the KKK historically wasn't a fringe group, actually. It went through three phases of development. Um, and the second phase, which is the one um, I'm going to pick on and be interested in particularly, uh, in, is the, it, 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 it ran between um, the 20s, uh, 1915 more specifically, actually, uh, until uh, around 1940, where it kind of declined. And then there was a third phase. During that, and more specifically, uh, around um, the middle of the uh, 13th 
of the last century, so around now 1924-25, there were uh, at least four million people claimed to be members of the Ku Klux Klan. That's about, my calculation, around 3.5% of the American population at the time. Mm -hmm. Some estimates vary, and um, some of them uh, take it to around potentially double that amount. A lot of people were members, but they would not declare uh, their membership. Uh, these people were, uh, and, and this is the example I'm trying to say to show that a supremacy is focused on, on themselves. So they think of them as superior. So they were against the Jews. Uh, they were against black people. They were against immigrants, uh, Hispanic people, etc. all kinds of things. But they were not, the, the focus here isn't actually listing all those people they are against. They were against. It's more about them being uh, the more kind of superior people and as a result obviously other people uh, were victimized uh, by their behaviors um the i'm going to show now um just a slide um this is i'm going to move from uh, that su supremacy supremacist ideology that more or less died and i'm going to talk about what i called a living supremacy, which is American exceptionalism. Yeah. And I'm going to try to show how, again, another point actually I missed there to mention. So if you think about what I said about the Ku Klux Klan, they were focused on on, on kind of on, on their land um, and in America, on the USA. They're trying yeah. to protect the USA from just the incoming of other immigrants, people they did disapprove of as being inferior to them. They were not actually thinking of how we're going to go out and then expand whatever ideology we believed in. It was the exact opposite. That is one difference why they are far, far to the rest of the world, to the external world, to the outside world, far less harmful than American exceptionalism. And I'll get, I'll get to this further. But let's look at this um, particular question of American exceptionalism. And I'm going to start... Um, by looking at a survey which was done in um, uh, tw 2019 and that this is from the institute of, uh, for global affairs um it formally it was uh, known as the eurasia group um, foundation and uh, here you go 42.5 roughly percent of americans believe that uh, Amer america is exceptional because of what it stands for. I, that's what I mean by principles, because yeah. it has those fantastic principles, etc. almost half of the population think just on the basis of its principles, America is exceptional. In other words, no other country in the world, no other country <laughs> in the world has those principles. Um, theirs are just much better, exceptional, unique, and superior. And then, 18% think that uh, America is exceptional because of what it did to the world, to the world. So those 42.5 uh, on the basis of what America stood for, stands for, and the other 18% uh, think they it is exceptional uh, because of what it did uh, uh, for the world. And um, then we have only that leaves us with um, 
uh, 39% who do not believe that uh, America uh, is uh, exceptional. And uh, those figures reflect um, the sample uh, and they run across all uh, group uh, ages, uh, age groups, sorry. And um, this is where, this is interesting. This is by age group now. And what you see here, uh, red means those who believe uh, America is exceptional on the basis of what it stands for. Uh, and that orangey kind of yellow color is because of what it did um, uh, for the wo world. And what you can see here is that there's some decline. Mm, it's very important. And really, it's, um, it's a kind of a, a bit of light in this darkness. So mm. what you see here is that clearly the change in the percentage of people who believe that America uh, holds exceptional principles is, is massively declining with age group. Why is that? Well, I think there are at least two main reasons. First of all, immigrants coming from uh, outside uh, and who are exposed to completely different cultures and who have enjoyed the actions of America in other parts of the world. And, uh, and also we have to say that it's general increased awareness uh, of America's uh, and what America uh, has done. And um, so, so there is an element of there's a significant change. One thing really that stands out as well here is that the change in the middle group, um, so kind of those who uh, uh, think America is exception, exceptional, on the basis of what it did uh, for the world, hasn't actually declined by as much. Mm -hmm. I mean, about 17%, it ranges between 17, 18, it was about 20. That's still uh, very, very uh, significant. Now, um, it's difficult really uh, to explain that because anybody who knows what America has done in the world can't really justify holding this belief in any way. Mm -hmm. It's all of detachment from reality. If it was happening at an individual level, the person would have been diagnosed with psychosis. <laughs> That's yeah. what would have that would have meant they would have been because they are also violent, they would have been sectioned. <laughs> that would have, would have happened if this was applied to a particular individual, indeed, even if it was applicable to a group of people while where this group of people not hidden inside America. That's what would have happened to it. Um, so that's that's the, the, the state of play. It's a very recent um, survey and it gives you an idea. Like I say, uh, there's a kind of a bit of hope there in terms of- uh, and this, was, this was done in 2019, as you say, but I, I can't help thinking that in 2023 slash 24, um, ongoing that 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 trajectory will be uh, will continue even more so that the eighteen to twenty nine group, for example, who, who said no, uh, that that will increase uh, um, because uh, you know is what well known American youth t t now tend to be much more pro Palestinian than ever before. So that, that means, in a sense, they're not going to be happy with Biden's, uh, um, you know, uh, 
financing and support of the military attack on the Palestinians. So I, I it just I, I'm just projecting that this will continue. It, it, it might actually accelerate. Actually, absolutely, I completely agree with you, uh, Paul, uh, on that point. I think. Uh, the, what's happening in particular now, if you compare just to kind of marginal point, in 2008, um, the attack on Gaza claimed about 1,400 people as victims, people killed. In 2014, that figure went up to 2,400, I think. Now, we're going to get to 30, it looks 30,000 yeah. yeah. and counting. And I the know. difference, of course, is that the availability of images, videos, and everybody sees what's going on. So I completely agree with you, Paul. This will have actually ultimately as costly as it is right now in terms of lives, livelihood, everything. It will ultimately lead to a substantial and significant change in one of these kind of uh, diseases that the world um, um, uh, has right now, which is American exceptionalism. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Right. Now, Let's me move to what I call the curious case of Barack Obama. Uh -huh. so, uh, or, or Barack Hussein Obama, to give him his full name. Fair enough, but I think he might not feel very happy if I would have used the word Hussein there. So let's uh, think of him as well. I'm going to do him a lot of good still, though, without using that name. <laughs> so that's um, after attending a G20 conference in uh, in the UK, in London, two days after that, um, Barack Obama, in a, in a news conference, uh, said the following. I believe, believe in American exceptionalism, just I suspect that the Brits believe in British exceptionalism and the Greeks believe in Greek exceptionalism. 2009. Now, what's interesting about this is that it's two days after G20. So you can see what's coming out here is that he's struggling he's a conflicted character which is why i'm picking up here he's far more sophisticated intellectual than the likes of um, uh, w bush yeah. um, or of course donald trump and many yeah. others indeed but yeah. he is he's, uh, what, so what you see here is that he's just attended this kind of global cooperation conference and you mm. can see it's coming out there mm -hmm. but what happened is as soon as he said that uh, he started getting attacked at home, of course, by all kinds of people and, of course, Republicans in particular. But then uh, this concept is not only Republican. So he was attacked for saying that. And, of course, it, he changed um, his, his tone and he started to speak the proper language about American exceptionalism. And obviously he's got lots to say, but this is another example. That's from 2014 in an address to the U.S. Military Academy. I believe in American exceptionalism with every fiber of my being. But what makes us exceptional, exceptional is not our ability to flout international norms and the rule of law. Flow. It's our willingness to affirm them through our actions. Again, there's an element you can see he's, he's confirming. Yeah, yeah.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. reasserting but there's something in the background of his mind they're trying to tell them there's this kind of um, strong link between american exceptionalism and we do what we like and he's trying to say i'm really struggling with that but i'm your president and our country is so much because it's a very free country as you know so um and you can see this conflicted character they're very highly intellectual um person and then <clears throat> I'm going to quote, I'm going to go back really to his early life and quote from his autobiography. Hmm. And this is what he said. The pride in being American, the notion that America was the greatest country on earth, that was always a given. As a young man, I chaffed against books that dismissed the notion of American exceptionalism, got into long drawn out arguments with friends who insisted the American hegemon was the root of oppression uh, worldwide. Uh, what you see here is a belief that he held from his um, early life, very young age, and then um, it continued with him. But because he was aware, well-informed, in fact, because of his roots uh, outside America, he was well, well aware of issues with America's, uh, America's behavior and actions uh, in the world. And he's trying to kind of balance these two. It's impossible, but that's what he's trying. But without this belief, uh, which he had as a young man, as he put it, um, he wouldn't have got to where he got. You can't actually become um, a U.S. president and you don't uh, share this belief. You have this belief. You have to be a believer, a strong believer with uh, every fiber of your being uh, that America is exceptional to get there. And true to his words, this is what he called his autobiography. Mm -hmm. a promised land and um you can see the kind of issues where we are um dealing. even that title that laboring the obvious a promised land well that reminds me of israel of course the promised land being canaan so there's exactly. a biblical uh, uh resonance there but also that america of course being a land that had no people in it the the, the physical continent of north america was a promised land and the uh, the the British and others who first went there occupied this land, which was theirs by divine right. That seems another subtext, which of course is completely wrong because there were many uh, population groups, nations, and peoples already existence in the promised land, uh, Canaan, um, and they had to be exterminated. And of course, they actually were uh, exterminated uh, famously in in North America, as they were. Well, according to uh, the Bible, anyway, in um, 
you know, in Canaan, literal Canaan in Palestine. So it's a very ominous title in, in one way, a promised land, when you actually read it in its biblical context, because that bespeaks to me of genocide, because that's explicitly what uh, the Israelites were commanded to do to those who lived in the promised land. And that is to kill the women, the children and the babies, 1 Samuel 15, famously, and other places where this is actually commanded of the Israelis or the Israelites, I should say, as they event called. Um, so that th th this th this is a subtext here of genocide, uh, I would argue, quite quite strongly. But he doesn't mean that, does he? He means a promised land. How wonderful. You know, this is our destiny. Uh, this is our future. How blessed we are by God. And this is a great paradox, isn't it? That on the other hand, it's of great promise, of destiny, of fulfillment. And on the other hand, of genocide, the literal extermination of whole peoples, targeted explicitly by the divine command. So it's a very paradoxical, isn't it? A, a self-contradictory narrative of blessing and curse at the same time for different peoples, obviously, blessing for the occupiers and a curse for everyone else. But it's a, a very complex and tr troubling title a promised land if you decode it or unpack it from its resonances biblically and so on anyway that's exactly paul why i picked um barack obama as a curious case because right. he's a curious case because yeah. unlike others he's well aware of what america uh, has done and is doing yeah. yet he can't let go of this yeah. of this faith and trying to put them together and you end up with this conflicted the president whom in 2015 the washington post said about him he is uh, the president that used the term american exceptionalism more than anyone else mm -hmm. and in a more varied way and this is very interesting and that's you can see this here mm -hmm. but it was part of his language and it actually never stopped uh, being so so let me move on now away from Obama. We've had enough of him. So far. <laughs> yes. And, uh, I think, uh, let me see, uh, let me stop this for now. Okay. 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 So back now to American supremacy. And I want to say a few things about the danger of American supremacy. I spoke earlier about other supremacist ideology and I said, uh, they're all dangerous in their own way but the danger is very localized very mm. limited so they, they all usually operate within that particular uh, country let's say and that's what happened even with the uh, kkk yeah american supremacy is very very different because american supremacy uh, uh operates across the the, the world everywhere it's its domain is the whole of this planet that makes it on its own very different from other supremacist ideologies but then if that was not bad enough it is supported and indeed <clears throat> embraced by the only superpower in this in this world and that superpower happened to have immense immense power in this sense this particular supremacist ideology is actually the first of its kind the worst we are living um as we speak 
Yeah, but if I could just say, sorry, I, I mean, sorry to interrupt your flow, just a word that's not often used in mainstream discourse, political reporting and analysis about America and this subject we're discussing now is the word empire, the American empire. It's not really, it doesn't really go, the American empire, is that really a fitting term? I think it's a very fitting term, obviously, because it, uh, America's reach extends way beyond its borders. It has military bases all over the Middle East, the Far East, you name it. It's imprint, it's material presence, controlling, monitoring, uh, uh, going into war is all all over the planet in a way that even the British Empire never extended its reach that far. So I think it's a super empire. It's not just a regular empire. Yes. It's an uber empire. Um, but it's not a word that's usually, I, I know the word is used in some left-wing discourse, uh, of course, but in terms of so-called mainstream Western discourse, it's not used. And it's always struck me as odd because it probably is an empire. Uh territorially i mean it occupies countries iraq and afghanistan and then retreats and so on it's it's very much on the ground around the globe um so it's just a i just wanted to throw that word in or that concept yeah, yeah. well even empire. without even when you look at places countries where they don't have any military presence there there's also the concept of um cultural occupation yeah, yeah, yeah. there's the economic uh, occupation, yes. uh, yes. occupation. There mm -hmm. is the political occupation. There are lots of countries you can look at and say, "Well, they are uh, they are basically like a client states of America." But exactly. I can't see any troops there. What yeah. is that? That's yeah. colonization. That's when you mention certain countries in the Middle East, which I won't despair. Uh, the you know uh, any criticism. Yeah. There are yeah. a number of examples in the Middle East where these countries exist because of American uh, power, not be, not in spite of it, and, and they are formally technically independent. But as you say, they are client states in all Absolutely. names. Absolutely, and um, um, so American um, supremacy is is obviously self image is a belief, but it really it's more than a belief. I compare it to religion, and I see it more as a religion because it has its own institutions as well. Mm. A belief is something you uh, hold dearly, something you believe in, but that is more that has some apparatus as well. There are people actually who work to implement uh, that faith. In this sense, it is the most dangerous religion that has ever existed in this world. They talk about Islam, they talk about Judaism, because, you know, in Europe it was a danger, Judaism. They talk about all kinds of religions. There has not been, yes, it's not a religion in the sense that it's an Abrahamic religion, etc., claiming to have come of God in the same way. But it's modeled than that on a Christian, um, Christianity and uh, Jewish kind of concepts. But it is actually a dangerous, dangerous religion. It, mm. enforces, it forces itself on the rest of the world uh, as a Muslim, for instance, you may think, oh, I would like actually, because I believe in Islam, I would like actually to share those thoughts with my friends, with people I don't, and people even I don't know. And I want actually to help them see how I see the world and may actually agree with me and share my faith ultimately. But you, that's, that's a, something you offer to them. And they uh, may or may not accept it. They may not take it. America is very different. American exceptionalism is something that is imposed on the world and the world has has to put up with it you've got no option there um american ex exceptionalism as we spoke it's the self-image of superiority i would like to mention here one particular verse from the quran that refutes any such um self-image um a claim to superiority from anybody and everybody 
and the it comes from uh, Anisa 46 this is chapter 4 um, uh, verse 46 if you'd like to check it there in your and it says in Arabic Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim Alam tara ila alladhina yuzakkuna anfusahum balillahu yuzakki man yasha wa la yuzlamuna fatila uh, it may be translated as have you not seen those who commend themselves rather Allah commands whom he wills and injustice is not to done to them in the slightest the 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 here the address is not actually to only any one particular group it's one of those universal uh, words in the Quran this applies uh, to Christians Jews Muslims, everybody. You don't see yourself. You do not commend yourself. You don't say I'm superior. Doesn't matter. Your your faith, you may think your faith is superior as in you are closer to the truth in terms of what you understand is going on, what the world is about. That's absolutely fine. You can have, but you can't lay claim to being superior to others on the basis of you having access to that truth that others don't have access to. This is very distinct kind of and very important distinction between the two because at times people tell you, oh, religion is cause all of that. No, first of all, religion does not call for that. Islam does not call for that. Second, uh, religion, if you look at what any particular religion did to this world, well, I'll tell you something, there's nothing nothing worse than this religion called American exceptionalism. Now, I'm going to mention a notorious name, um, somebody called Madeleine Albright, um, who uh, was uh, Secretary of State in the US. And I'm going to quote a couple of the things. She was very, very good at saying the most offensive things a human being can think about about other people, people she did not like. She was very good at that and highly uh, articulate, actually, in doing that. Mm. Um, so in one instance uh, in the 1990s, I don't know exactly where, and she said about Iraq the following. If we have to use force, it is because we are America. We are the indispensable nation. We stand tall and we see further than other countries into the future. Um, I mean, what kind of narcissistic language is this? I mean, if you meet somebody on the street who speaks this kind of language about themselves, what are you going to think of them? But as it happened, this is um, uh, a highly um, regarded uh, person in the administra Clinton administration um, at the time. In, an, in another quote, multilateral, she's talking about America behaving uh, in multilateral way when we can, unilateral when we must. So basically, it means nothing. If we think we have to go all the way our own, we do it all the way. So uh, multi, being multi, multilateral is just kind of a bit of double speak, really. If you go come along with me, uh, it's multilateral. If you don't, if you would like to let me down and let me really disappointed with you, I'm going unilateral and you will ultimately come back and support me and you've got no option. That's Madeleine Albright. That's a form of 
kind of expressions of this American exceptionalism uh, that we are talking about. This is why, as I mentioned earlier, American exceptionalism is a form of psychosis in, in, in any other context that how people uh, would have uh, looked at it. So where did it come from? Where did it start? Mm. That's really what we'd like to get to. Get to. I think it can be traced back, it's usually traced back to as early as the, the 17th century. More specifically, when the Puritans arrived uh, in 1630 uh, to New England, um, Puritans from England arrived to New England, um, uh, and then uh, they were, there were this particular instance, about 700 uh, of them uh, on the uh, on the, I think it's called the uh, Arbella, I think, um, the ship that carried them. And uh, with them was John Winthrop. I thought it was the Mayflower, but maybe it was another ship called that. Which one? The, May, the Mayflower, the, uh, the, famously. That, yeah, that's a different one. Uh, oh, different. Sorry. It's a different one. The one I'm, I'm, I'm talking about here, the right. 1630, uh, in which um, uh, John Winthrop, arrived okay, okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah and oh, yeah. Um, he is he ultimately became one of the founders of the massachusetts bay colony uh, this is one of the 13 colonies that about 140 years later would end up uh, leading the revolution uh, american revolution and then um, effectively becoming the united states of america um, so he was one of the founders uh, there and uh, he gave uh, gave um this uh, it's a it's a sermon it's not clear whether he actually wrote it in england and he never delivered it or um, he actually gave it on the abella or it's not clear uh, but uh, in that sermon he was speaking to fellow puritans and he said um, for we must consider that we shall be a city upon a hill a city upon a hill and this uh, actually uh, he's quoting matthew uh, 514 for those who would like to check it out and uh, this is from a speech sermon by jesus um, in which he says you are the light of the world of the of the world a city built on a hill cannot be hidden uh, so that imagery uh, and you can see how he's looking at and he's talking to fellow uh, puritans and puritans were already kind of quite full of themselves really uh, they were not very happy uh, with the changes and uh, reform that were taking place in america they thought they did not go uh, far enough um, getting rid of uh, catholic heritage etc uh, so they were uh, kind of and they were also believed and they were be they believed they were in had this covenant with god and this destructive concept of covenant that can turn anybody into a just complete a narcissist basically because they think they have a covenant uh, with god and um what's interesting is that um that that became basically a phrase that what picked up uh, it, it's not because of the phrase it really kind of represented an idea represented mm -hmm. a particular mindset that then uh, endured over the centuries and was developed and quoted over and over and over again it's interesting that um, within seven years of delivering that um, sermon uh, by then um, uh, john withrop had become governor 
uh, and of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And that's when they he approved uh, of the well-known massacre uh, of the, the Bigwood uh, um, uh, Indians, where about, I think, 400 uh, of them uh, were killed. And um, he actually got here a note where he uh, memori memorialized the victory by declaring a public day of Thanksgiving after its soldiers re returned home. So that's the same person who spoke about that city on a hill, and you can see what he's doing to people who are not. Uh, the hill in the Bible often means Zion, which is the mountain, uh, Mount Zion. It's the same thing, actually, which is, of course, Jerusalem, where the temple uh, was built, uh, Solomon and then the second temple. Uh, yeah. so, so it's not just any old hill. It's not just like a hill metaphor. This is explicit reference in the Bible to Jerusalem itself and the temple of Jerusalem, which, of course, has been destroyed 2,000 years now. So yeah. th 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 there's identification there that we, that the new Christians in America, are the new Israel, that there's a, a sense of identifying the type, the typology there is the same. So there were the Jews then. Now we are the new Israel now. And we have our promised land. And, you know, as I keep on saying, everyone's pointing out because the prime minister of Israel now, Netanyahu himself pointed out when he was uh, he talked about uh, uh, the, the, the genocide that the Jews in the, the Amaleks, exactly the tribe of the Amaleks. So the, 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 these ideas are not just history. This is contemporary politics and it's, and it's an ideology that is uh, motivating the killing of people as we speak. So it, it couldn't, you know, the thing about the Bible, by the way, is a, a different point. But, you know, why should we bother reading the Bible? Who cares about this dusty old text? Well, a lot of people care about it and it, it informs government policy still in America, for a lot of people anyway and in Israel and around the world. So it's very much a live text in a way we wish it wasn't alive in that way, but it is used and weaponized now to uh, justify genocide as we speak. So it can't be more important that we are what we wise up about what's really going on here and the religious risks. And often in the West, Western journalists don't like talking about religion very much and the theology and the metaphysics behind what's going on. But the people involved do talk about it. The settlers in uh, Palestine are motivated by their twisted biblical narrative. So, yeah, it really matters, the Bible. Yeah. I mean, the Bible uh, was the most read book uh, in America, mm. uh, even at the time of the revolution. And when the Constitution was written down, it mm. was highly influential in the thinking and the wording, uh, moral values, as whether these were put you know, to practice or not is a different story. But everybody was highly influenced. And when you, um, and these immigrants um, were all, we're talking about, who ultimately ended up forming this kind of the seed of American exceptionalism, were all Christians. Christians who believed in the Hebrew Bible. They believed in the, in what happened in the, in the concept of chosen people of God, um, promised land, uh, covenant, um, all of those concepts uh, were very familiar to them. Uh, the, they believed in them. Uh, and ultimately, uh, you it's not really a huge leap to see how uh, this belief was moved uh, from uh, being about historical Israel to mm -hmm. being about uh, new America. Uh, and that's exactly uh, what happened. That's the start. And then it developed and it continued and it in endured uh, over time. And um, 
this this concept of obviously uh, being um, city on a hill mm. is again very close to the concept of chosenness. So the yeah. chosen people uh, of God, and then this term, this concept, starting to be used all the time. Even somebody like Lincoln, uh, Abraham Lincoln, who abolished uh, slavery, of course, um, used the word. Um, he described Americans as almost chosen people. He was a bit careful, um, given that, uh, but he spoke about almost chosen people. And um, in uh, that was in 1861. That's while a president. In 1862, I've got another quote from him. He said about, about America, the last best hope of Earth. The last best. Look at that. This is, by the way, we're talking kind of 1860s. So this isn't America of today with achievements, etc. That's there and then. That was the belief. So this belief endured regardless. It, it just it was there uh, all the time. Yeah. And of course, uh, somebody who picked up this particular phrase, city on a hill, and was completely fascinated by it, um, almost obsessed, was Ronald Reagan. Um, because uh, the, obviously was um, you know a Republican and um, uh, he spoke about but but the concept of city on a hill was not good enough for him. He turned it into a shining city on a hill, as if that wasn't big enough, visible mm. enough, superior enough. Let's add a little bit of light to it as well. Mm. So mm. Now it's the shining city on a hill. Uh, he. If you listen to, for those who are interested, and if they want to listen to his farewell speech recorded in his own voice in 1989, where he obviously, like everybody, every president, they have to look back and then review their career because everybody will have to be grateful for what they've done, etc. And then he obviously picked up the subject that he couldn't let go of, which is the shining city uh, on a hill. When you listen to him talking about it, the tone and the wording is really kind of reminiscent of something like you could imagine Samuel Coleridge talking about um, Kublai Khan and Zanadu. He was supposedly received in a dream. That's what he said. And when you listen to him talking about that idea, shining city on hell, that's really what, what I thought of when I, when I listened to him the way he's put it. Now, he, whether he, you know, um, trained to put it the way he did, but it was, frankly, I almost believed him. So it was this effective. So, so that was uh, Regan. And that belief the, in, the, in America's exceptionalism, as I said, endured. It was very early on when America was nothing other than few settlers among the native population. Uh, and it continued to this day. And what this tells you is that that just confirms it's just a faith. It's nothing else. It's a faith. It has no roots in history. Mm-hmm. It has no roots in, in what... So when I um, showed earlier that survey from 2019, some people talking about America is exceptional because of what it stands for, and America is exceptional because of what it did uh, 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 to the world, mm. they're really talking nonsense there because actually this belief has nothing to do with any justification. You did not need to just as people who believed it at no point use the same justification. 
it just it all the time circumstances change but the uh, belief itself it's not changed and that's where the i established the historical link between israel and america americans the first settlers saw themselves this way as chosen people who were given it in the promised land and who had this kind of special relationship with god because they were all uh, religious the, they modeled this image on the image of the israelites in the hebrew bible and as it of course the hebrew bible is a kind of ethnocentric book where uh, the israelites uh, uh, are the focus of, uh, of it it's it just it's a history of them so it was very easy uh, for them then to use it model it on themselves and then we ended up uh, with this kind of the uh, I, I there's another remarkable parallel, which is obvious. The, the, both of these uh, peoples, the Americans and the Israelis, uh, are, are both settler colonialists. Uh, and so that there is that kind of, they're both very similar. They, they both are people who believe they have a, a divine right to occupy other people's land and to cleanse them of that land and just kill them. The Amalekites, the, the, as, as you mentioned, uh, the Israeli PM recently explicitly referencing this trope, which has been used throughout Jewish history uh, uh, as the archetypal enemy of the Jews and who should be exterminated. Um, and, and of course, the uh, the Native Americans uh, s suffered a similar fate, of course, as well. So they're, 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 they're blood brothers. They're, they're of a type, really. There is a familial likeness between the Americans and the Israelis in that they, they both uh, have a an ideological justification for genocide, uh, but it's cloaked in uh, shiny language, literally the shiny uh, city on a hill. So those that don't think beyond the propaganda are can identify with that with a sense of honor, perhaps, you know, uh, yeah. where we are honorable people, e even though the reality uh, is the opposite. It's very dishonorable. Um, yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. Is this settler uh, colonization is very much what happened or in the Bible, uh, in Palestine, we're told by the Hebrew Bible, and exactly what happened in uh, in America. And of course, if you justify, and a lot of people, I'll get to that point, justified what happened uh, to the local, um, you know, inhabitants of Canaan before the Israelites went in, they justified it on the basis God allowed this to happen, God wanted to happen, then they also justified what they did themselves uh, to the Indians, to the uh, native uh, population uh, of America when they uh, moved in. Now, the, as I mentioned, there are, the concept the faith uh, of American exceptionalism is effectively an act of plagiarism. It was plagiarized from the Hebrew Bible um, by people who said, okay, the Israelites were the chosen people of God. Now we are the new chosen people of God. Uh, they were they were given a promised land, promised land. This is our promised land. Uh, they are uh, effectively holy uh, to God. We are now the new holy uh, people uh, to God. Now, the Jews can always go back to the to their Bible and say, well, that's not really what we say about ourselves. That that's what God says about us, because that's the scripture. Now, so they can quote the, the Bible. Americans can only quote themselves. They have no other source. Uh, 
Mm. It's complete and utter plagiarism. They stole it from the Hebrew Bible in the same way they very efficiently and effectively stole the land in America. They have very good history with material and immaterial things when they when they steal them. Now, I would like to introduce another idea. So go to if we go back to the slides. Manifest Destiny. Uh, destiny. Some great paintings of called Manifest Destiny in the art galleries. Uh, some great art. I mean, to celebrate this uh, by American artists. Yeah. Wow. OK. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. It, is, it is celebrate, isn't it? OK. It is. So this concept was introduced, usually attributed to somebody called John Sullivan. Um, he uh, coined this exact term in 1845. He used it before without putting it in, in this particular uh, wording, but that's what he did. And this is one of the quotes in something he wrote. Um, and he said, the right of our manifest destiny to overspread and to uh, possess the whole of the continent which providence has given us for the development of the great experiment of liberty and federated self-government entrusted to us. Mm -hmm. That's what he said. He was a journalist. He was an editor. He was an active, actually, kind of supporter uh, of the Confederate States uh, of America, even though earlier he was against uh, slavery. And... Um, so he defended earlier the he ultimately ended up defending the institution of slavery what he's talking about here is the going west so expanding effectively the land uh, that was being um, colonized now i think here specifically he might have been talking about oregon and mexico mm -hmm. um, if, if, if i remember uh, correctly and then what happened is that late in the 19th century uh, this concept uh, of spreading um, American the American experiment and the American model went actually uh, beyond uh, American boundaries. And then uh, you found uh, America getting involved in um, the Philippines, Indonesia, uh, Puerto Rico, uh, and Cuba. Um, so it's become kind of, a, it's a doctrine. It's a doctrine. It's not always people with, kind of Americans, would necessarily um, um, confess to adopting it, but it's really what everybody knows uh, has been happening. And if you take the descriptions there and apply them today, they fit uh, mm. absolutely, absolutely well. And then, so this is what we would call um, colonialism. That's mm. effectively the concept. And I would like to kind of talk about something here that um, because I, the, the, what's implied here, what, what Americans always talk about in terms of exceptionalism, two really main concepts, democracy and freedom. Mm. Democracy and freedom. So the president of the US is the leader of the free world, as our own leaders in, in the UK, France, everywhere would like to call them, um, as if it's a you know, prayer they have to repeat. So I would like to just to draw some um, focus here on on kind of recast the concept uh, of American exceptionalism in other terms and just um, explain what democracy has done. So this national election, so uh, democracy is based on having an election, a national election, whereby you end up choosing effectively that when you have democratically elected leaders. So national election, uh, you've got a democracy in, in place. 
what we end up usually having is this, what I call international dictatorship. So what happens when you talk, when they talk about democracy, they stop at the second, at the middle and the second expression there. So we are a democracy. Now that democracy was supposed to be about uh, their country, um, ruling their own country, leading their country, giving their people the best living conditions, etc. But the language and the promise has to be internal. That's the whole point of a democracy. It's national. It is national. Yet, yet, we, the victims of, as many other people, the victim, victims of American exceptionalism, we suffer uh, what is the other face uh, this national democracy, which is international dictatorship. So dictatorship, this term is often used in a derogatory way to talk about the others, meaning those who do not have democracy in their own country. Yeah, well, absolutely, I agree with you. That is called dictatorship, but that's what I would call national dictatorship. The mm -hmm. dictator who's actually focused on controlling their own, his, her own uh, country and people. <clears throat> but what you create here, one national democracy, creates international dictatorship then then uh, goes out and actually uh, forces itself on so many other countries that is another way of looking at the concept of american democracy That's and, and if i could just add you, you quote john o'sullivan in 1845 um who talks about um how providence has given us um you know there is continent uh, for liberty and self-government. It sounds wonderful, but this was before the American Civil War, and I think it was 1861. So at this time, in 1845, slavery uh, was a reality and uh, completely practiced and accepted part of the American Manifest Destiny. So th th this was a democracy built on the slavery of a whole race uh, of people, of course, uh, black chattel slavery. So it's interesting how he doesn't see any contradiction there between the reality of this great experiment of liberty and the existence of the, one of the most appalling manifestations of slavery in history. He, they go together. He reminds me of like, uh, people like uh, John Stuart Mill in England at the same time, actually, a contemporary, um, who wrote the famous book on liberty, uh, you know, manifesto for liberty, individual liberty. And yet he, is, he advocates uh, for bar what he calls bar barbaric peoples, i.e. non-white people, uh, despotism as the most suitable form of government for uh, the rest of the world. So liberty is for us, uh, for Britain, uh, in the same way that democracy is for America, but internationally it's for dictatorship. So it, 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 it well, can only scratch the surface very little, but about before one sees these glaring anomalies and contradictions, you know, the endorsement acceptability of slavery in America at the same time that they boast about liberty and self-governance in their country. I mean, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. It is. It really. It is exceptional, actually. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. it's, it's definitely. So that's uh, one take on the concept of democracy that we are being haunted by, um, and then there's the other concept of liberty, freedom. So here we go. Here we have national freedom, which is linked to democracy, but what it um, leads to is international oppression, subordination, control you name it. So yeah. again, these two concepts, democracy and freedom, they are actually used only uh, uh, in, a, in a particular way, in a proper way, let's say, nationally, but they actually result in their exact opposite internationally. Mm 
So if anybody speaks about them in positive terms, they can only describe an internal system, national system. To the rest of the world, everybody suffered. Countless, countless people. We're talking about Palestine. Palestine, a lot of people there are suffering now, but actually over the centuries, you're talking millions and millions and millions, just countless people suffered uh, the uh, American democracy and American freedom. These are the outcomes. I might as well just mention um, something that actually, let me just, I think, stop this uh, for now. Um, yeah, okay. So I remember when I um, came to the UK in 1992 uh, with my wife. And then um, one of the things, obviously at the time, Saddam was uh, in power in Iraq, war, etc. Saddam was a dictator, proper dictator, but he was a fair dictator. He was a dictator with everybody. And <laughs> not, yeah, not the way they present him here. Oh, yeah, he was a dictator only against the Shias. That's complete nonsense, which resulted in um, changing the balance in, in, the, in Iraq ultimately. But that's a different story. But what, what I'm trying to say here is that when I came, one of the things, in addition to so many myths about Iraq, um, I said it was struck by the um, newspapers, media, etc., uh, attacking Saddam often for killing his own people. Right. So killing other people is actually better uh, uh, kind of than killing his own people. Mm -hmm. uh, are these mad? Mm -hmm. I'm just looking at it, listening to it. Is it can't mm -hmm. they actually understand what they're saying, the implication of what they're saying? Um, you're saying that killing one's own people is so bad that as if killing someone else's people is okay. The Quran um, says that we created people uh, as nations and tribes, but people in the the most noble of you in the eyes of, of Allah is, is the, the most pious of you. And piety doesn't mean just pray, etc. It's a broader term. So this is how you look at it. This is the concept of people uh, and peace in the Quran. What on earth are they talking about? So Saddam was bad because he killed Iraqis. So bad, he killed his own people. But when the Americans come and kill the Iraqis, not that bad. Liberators, aren't they? So I just wanted to mention this kind of, because it's a personal experience that I found quite kind of shocking. Moving on, since we're talking about um, biblical concepts, imageries, etc., let's move to the founding fathers. Uh, those, um, so not yet, I think. Uh, okay. Yeah. So um, this term was coined by uh, Warren Harding in uh, uh, in 1916. Uh, he was a senator at the time, and then he used it again when he became in his inauguration when he became president, founding fathers. And that's a reference to the seven leaders who ultimately led the revolution, um, etc. <clears throat> I haven't come across anybody who says, you know, founding, father, founding fathers is a religious kind of, give it any religious connotation. But as mm -hmm. somebody who's been looking at this and this, see just Hebrew biblical imageries everywhere, I just could not not notice the similarity between this term and the co concept of patriarchs uh, in the Bible, mm -hmm. uh, which refers to Abraham, mm -hmm. obviously, um, uh, Jacob, 
the word patriarch itself it comes from the patri, meaning you know, father of, of, of yeah, people. Exactly. It exactly. is exactly the same concept. Exactly. In the now, it's possible somebody must have established some uh, link between them. I haven't seen it myself, but I'm just uh, saying that mm. um, it, 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 it's kind of there. And as I mentioned earlier, really the Bible was quoted extensively by the founding fathers. It was mm. the most read and the most uh, quoted uh, book. What's also interesting is that those uh, uh, founding fathers were also portrayed as religious figures uh during their lives and also afterwards george washington uh, after a first uh, american president of course and uh, leader of the revolution after uh, he died he was imagined uh, uh, and portrayed as a prophet and at times even as jesus himself and um, he was also called uh, the american joshua the american joshua now we all know what Joshua did yeah. in the Bible. You spoke about this earlier. It's the book of Joshua, by the way, folks. You can read it in the Old Testament. Uh, some some choice genocides in there. Yeah, I'm going to quote just one from Joshua 6.21. Then they devoted to destruction by the edge of the sword, all in the city, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys. And uh, now this, this kind of, so founding fathers were actually compared and likened mm. to, to the kind of genocidal figures and that was okay what, what yes. that was all right yes that's, that's, I, I mean i i, I well, it's an important caveat i think although what you're saying is true it, it is the case from what i can tell having read um academic works on the archaeology of these areas yeah. of canaan that though the Bible does describe conquests of Canaan and the extermination of peoples and nations and so on in, in a very brutal way, targeting no evidence. there is no evidence. Absolutely not. If you go down the sedimentary layer, the strata of the earth, you should expect to find, archaeologists have say, evidence of mass genocides, of burnings, of rubble, of, of mass grave. You don't find it. Yeah. And so the, 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 the academic wisdom now is that there may have been a piecemeal incursion into the land of Canaan over time by smaller groups of Israelites, whatever, because obviously they did end up there. But the, the biblical story is probably a myth, um, which I guess is kind of nice in one way. But on the other hand, the myth has still been read always as history until very recently by Christians and the yes. church and by yeah. people always taken as factual, as it is today by many Isra Israelis, yeah. of course. But it probably, this is a great irony of history, it probably didn't happen like that at all. There's no mass genocide. Um, the mean, section, it's a myth because yeah, there's I mean, no evidence for it. You would, you would see the evidence in the archaeological correct. record. No one's ever found it. Uh, this particular quote I have from Joshua 621 is about Jericho. And Jericho exactly. is 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 exactly. a place where there is no evidence that exactly. the I was just Jericho. Jericho is one of the oldest and continuously inhabited cities on the planet, and archaeology has been done on this area right down through the sedimentary areas down to that period of time when Joshua allegedly you know wrote these events. There's no evidence that that the uh, that Jericho collapsed and all these people were killed. So th this is this is legend and fiction that was always read as history after that, I guess. Um, 
but scholars know it didn't happen, and yet it's been used to justify uh, and give uh, and give legitimation, divine legitimation, to genocide. It's a great irony that a myth has been weaponized to actually make it real after all, even though it was never real in the first place. It doesn't really matter because ultimately it's about the faith, isn't it? People believe that this is what God instructed them to do, yeah. and they yeah. act accordingly. The yeah. fact that you were trying to try to exonerate the Bible, really, or, or the early Israelites, and say, well, well they did not actually do that. that. This is what this is the research. I mean, I'm I'm not yeah. trying to uh, take an ideological side here. It's just it's just the case that often in the Bible states things as historical actually are right. myth. Uh, and uh, whether it be the universal flood under Noah in Genesis chapter six, I think there is no evidence of a universal global flood that, that engulfs the whole planet, which is what the state text says. The Quran has a much more limited flood, of course, in Correct. that particular area Correct. of the world. So it's not a problem for the Quran. But for the Bible, it's a big problem. Uh, and you get multiple examples like that of statements, which uh, is like the the uh, the Israelite ex exit from uh, Exodus from Egypt. You know, millions of people left and crossed over the impossible figures no. impossible no, no one can they are literally impossible historically so that's not true either but you can have a much smaller group perhaps and yeah. scholars do argue this that did well you might argue this um that, that made their traverse across the sinai desert into the so-called we actually do but probably we did that kind of yeah. really quite detailed um, video at the time about the exodus yeah absolutely right uh, what so the quran says is say what the bible says unfortunately literally you really have to check it against independent uh, uh, investigations often it's not true and yeah. it's interesting i mean it's a different subject entirely when, when you check the quran's narrative of the, it, it doesn't suffer the same consequences at all it's much more nuanced and careful in what correct. it says well that's a different correct. subject correct yeah. correct so um another concept uh, so the we spoke about uh, chosenness we spoke mm -hmm. about a uh, promised land but there are other actually kind of terms um that were also borrowed from the Hebrew Bible. Uh, so uh, you come across America being described as the new Israel. Mm. So you've come across um, uh, this somebody called um, Ezra Stiles, um, who's well known, um, and he spoke about American Israel. Uh, you come across something like um, even the concept of redeemer nation. So a nation that was actually there to rescue the world. Um, and and it's very much these are all highly theological religious terms completely borrowed uh, from the Hebrew Bible have no evidence whatsoever but they become actually part of the normal language so people use this language this kind this kind of terms and nobody look at them and frowned at them and said what are you saying that's actually very very normal and um, during the uh, war of independence the 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 the, the struggle that of americans for independence were actually portrayed as a new exodus uh, even the uh, uh, english king um, george uh, the the third was actually likened to pharaoh so what you have here again a recast of religious history uh, israelite history onto uh, uh, the new america Okay, can I, can I, just a, a footnote on that. I mean, I, 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 in the past, I used to read quite a bit about English history during the Civil War period, during the 17th century in England. Um, and one of, uh, Christopher Hill, the great English, uh, is actually a Marxist historian, but he wrote incredible books on, on, 
on the Cultural Revolution and the people uh, at that time in England. And one of the things he stressed a great deal, it was very, very true, is the absolute centrality in England at that time of the Bible itself. The Bible was the book uh, through which you interpreted absolutely everything. Politics, the monarchy, republicanism, uh, the people, you know, who, who are the new uh, the Israelites, England then was. A, and it, it's difficult to, uh, you know, we uh, really appreciate just how absolutely important and central the Bible was in England. And that was exported to America, obviously, because the original settlers were English, because they were the most persecuted Puritans who really had a fanatical devotion to the Bible. But it was shared by all society, whether it be Anglo-Catholics or Catholics or everyone saw the Bible as central. So the Americans is not unique or exceptional in that sense in seeing their 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 politic, their, their polity, their political system politically, they're, they're just reusing um, ideas that were quite, very common at that time in the 17th century and 18th century subsequently. But it, it seems to, because the secularization, particularly in Europe, ha has the Bible has been sidelined completely, really, I would, uh, I would suggest. But in America, for many, it's still an icon. You know, yeah. unless you can refer to the Bible, whether it be Saddam Hussein, of course, it's in the Bible, the book, the book Apocalypse, or the European Union, or Hitler, or or whatever, whatever. You know, you, you could always find these contemporary figures somewhere in the Bible. And it sounds crazy, and it is crazy. But it's because they, for many, many Americans still, although less so now in, in Europe, the Bible is the way you look at everything. And unless we appreciate this, the icon, the, uh, the iconic stat status of the Bible in American culture and religious life, we're not going to get it. We're just not going to understand America. Now, of course, a lot of Americans now are quite secular. So there's been a, there is a change going on, but it's there still. And in the past, it was even more so. Yeah. What's interesting as well, just to add to what you've just said, um, when uh, the first settlers arrived there, the mm. Bible, just before, you know, all the way before the revolution, the Bible uh, was um, read as meaning you have to actually uh, follow the king, the, there was no concept of democracy. It's about the king, the ruler, etc. When we got to the revolution, the Bible had to be reinterpreted. Now the Bible supports democracy. And that confirms <laughs> your point here. What yeah. matters? The Bible is a means. I want something. The Bible is going to give it to me. But it also shows the central uh, role of the Bible. But then the Bible loses its own definition. What is the Bible? The Bible becomes a reflection of my wishes and hopes and dreams, etc. The Bible does does not have an external existence. It's what I think of it, depending on my circumstances at the time. But yes. it remains very vital and critical to my life. Yes. You right. Yes. So, um, looking at yeah, so. Uh, Again, one, one point to kind of repeat here is that all these concepts um, as versatile, related as they are, and coming from the Hebrew Bible, have no historical basis. They were completely self-proclaimed by the yeah. settlers. And, and you can see now the link between how America sees itself and how Israel, how important for Israel to be there. 
because if Israel is not there, it's only something mentioned in an old book, etc., called the Bible, which is very, very important for us. But imagine of this Israel is recreated. It comes into being. This is the Bible coming back into life. It, the Bible that is now the proof of my own existence and self-image has actually independent evidence as a proof actually in the Holy Land. Uh, the in this case, what I share, the Americans, what they share with the Israelites, is not shared values unless genocide is now a value. So that's what they share. They share this image, self-image, that they found in the Hebrew Bible. Yeah. So when America intervenes to, to kind of strengthen Israel, to let them be their population in, in Palestine, let them be in control, treat them differently, and exceptionalize them, as I'm going to say later, that's all linked to how America sees itself. If the Israelites aren't there, where's the evidence of America? America the belief, America the faith, America the psychosis. It doesn't exist. But when the Israelites are there and the Bible has been re-kind of affirmed on the ground, then everything I see about myself being exceptional is actually there for everybody uh, to see and uh, so protecting um, concept of chosenness uh, the rights of the Israelites or Israelis to Palestine becomes um, a proxy way of affirming Americans chosenness and Americans right to the uh, to the land they occupied now, we have been talking about slightly different expressions here. We've been talking exceptionalism, and we've been talking chosenness, promised land, exodus, uh, redeemination. All of these are religious terms. Exceptionalism actually is a relatively new term. It's a secular term. Yeah. Exceptionalism itself does not carry any religious connotation. Mm -hmm. It has this kind of uh, superiority connotation to it, uh, but it, it, it's not actually religious itself. It just say we are unique and better uh, than everybody else. And the reason it entered into uh, the language is because not everybody is comfortable now using religious language to describe themselves and their self-image. So there are people who would believe in the same concept of chosenness, etc., but they don't want to describe them, describe this faith in these terms. And this is why uh, we ended up uh, recasting somebody, recasting uh, this concept, this religious concept all uh, on the term, uh, the neutral term, uh, exceptionalism, which became the term that often leaders would use american presidents uh, they would use still god and you know god related terms but not as often as they would use uh, exceptionalism mm. and as i mentioned earlier because this exceptionalism is is worldwide applies everywhere it has become the most dangerous form uh, of uh, you know, supremacist ideology. I would like to move now to a very important concept that's really at the heart and foundation of what we're talking about, which is Zionism. Zionism is a concept that has long history, goes back centuries, 
in a mild way, if you like, not very strong. But obviously, it took a quite um, developed um, strongly and became more focused um, in the late um, 19th century. And then there was the first um, Zionist Congress in Basel, in Switzerland, uh, in 1897. And uh, Zionism in there was defined as, quote, um, Zionism strives to create for the Jewish people a home in Palestine secured by public law. That's mm. how it defined uh, Zionism. Um, I'm gonna like now in in, in in 1917, November 1917, the uh, Foreign Secretary at the time, Arthur Balfour, uh, Foreign Secretary here in, in in the UK, issued what is known as the Balfour. Uh, declaration yep. and I think if I put it back here um, do you see it Paul? Or? Uh, no uh, we've well, got the words Balfour Declaration I mean I didn't see anything. Uh, yes, that's exactly what, what, okay. we're, um, okay. what we're after so that's and th this, oh, okay. this is what it is yep. this was sent in a letter um, to um, a Jewish um, a leader of, of the uh, Jewish community uh, in the UK called the uh, Lord um, uh, Rothschild. And um, so it goes, His Majesty's government view, view with favor the establishment of Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best at, uh, uh, endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing uh, non-Jewish communities in Palestine or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any uh, other country. And um, at the time when this was made, I think if I uh, just... At the time when this was made, the uh, the uh, non-Jewish popula population the, or non-Jews were uh, made about over 90% of the population um, in Palestine. Uh, some statistics suggest that they were the Jews were maybe as little as six percent mm -hmm. at the time when this was made and um, this is why it, this particular declaration is notoriously uh, described as um, the declaration the promise of those who do not own uh, to those who do not deserve so mm -hmm. those who don't own being the British and whoever bought into it and um, and those who don't deserve being the Jews meaning the Jews who are living outside Palestine that's not their homeland actually they'll have to come back and then take uh, the land from others so Zionism in this case it's it's a, it's a kind of settler uh, colonialism that's what it is this is exactly what happened in America is a point uh, you mentioned earlier and that's what uh, happened if you look at how um, Zionism was implemented, and this strategy is effectively just encouraging migration when it wasn't war, it wasn't gradual, and they took over the land and they use all kinds of techniques, uh, buying land, forcing people to leave, by terrorism, etc. It's interesting that in, in the early days of, of the National Socialist government in Germany in the 1930s, uh, the Nazis were very actively cooperating with Zionists to uh, uh, resettle German Jews in Palestine. And you can even see some coins uh, that were minted by the German government, the Nazis themselves. On the, one side, the, on the one side, 
the swastika, of course, yeah. and on the other side, the Star of David. And this was to commemorate this um, so-called partnership between the Jews, uh, the German Jews, uh, uh, it, and, and they were encouraged to go back to occupy Palestine. So in a way, I mean, this is very controversial to say this. So there's a British politician, Ken Livingstone, who was the mayor of London, who was vilified by the established media here uh, for lying about this because he said this happened. But it does happen. It's well known. There's plenty of evidence it happened. Um, now, I, I'm not saying, obviously, later on, the, the Nazis took a very different uh, attitude, uh, uh, a genocidal attitude. But early on, they actually cooperated in resettling Jews from Germany in Palestine. So they were pro-Zionist. Can you believe that? <laughs> That's, that's, that's the whole point I mentioned earlier about supremacists. Supremacists focus on their own, on themselves. They are not really, they would like to get rid of the others. Yes. They're not interested. Where they go, it, it's of no, they don't care. I mean, yes. the Nazis could have just thrown the Jews anywhere and they wouldn't have cared about them because they are caring about effectively purifying if you like, oh, yeah. they're on contact. Oh, no, they weren't doing it for honorable reasons, don't get me wrong. The Nazis weren't doing it because they yeah. cared. <laughs> they did it because they, they wanted an efficient way of removing these people, as you say. Yeah, Absolutely. So yeah. the uh, Balfour uh, Declaration is notorious. Everybody knows about it. Anybody who knows anything about the Palestinian problem mm -hmm. uh, knows about it. But what people don't know is that and even when I, you know, I grew up in Iraq, of course, and I always was even taught that uh, at school that this is the Balfour Declaration, this is how um, Israel, the occupation of Israel started. But the reality is um, the Zionist movement and the support for Zionism goes back much earlier before that. And I'm going to go back. It's, it goes back as, as early as the a century. And more specifically, and I'm going to show you a slide here. John Adams is a founding father. So president, president of the United States, of course. Yes, he was the second president uh, from 1797 to 1801. Um, he, was, um, he liked uh, the writings of a Jewish uh, writer called Mordecai Noah, uh, who was the most important and well-known uh, Jew in the in, in the US um, at the time. And uh, he wrote to him after reading a particular book about um, travels uh, in Africa and elsewhere, uh, he wrote to him a letter. So John Adams wrote to this Zionist um, and, and he wrote to him the following. Now remember, this was a hundred years before the Balfour Declaration. I could find it in my heart to wish that you had been at the head of 100,000 Israelites, indeed, as well as disciplined as the, as the French army, and marching with them into Judea and making conquest of that country and restoring your nation to the dominion of it. For I really wish the Jews again in Judea, an independent nation, for as I believe the most enlightened men of it have participated in the emulations of the philosophy of the age, once restored to an independent government and no longer persecuted, they would soon wear away some of the asperities and peculiarities, he couldn't stop himself having a bit of a go here, of their character, possibly in time become liberal Unitarian Christians. <laughs> Well, yeah, that's, he, he just, he's got it all. He, what a dream. A dream just contains everything. Well, just like him, presumably he was a liberal Unitarian Christian then. Yeah. yeah. For your Jehovah is our Jehovah. And that's a lie, of course. 
and your God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is our God. Obviously, right? Because obviously, Orthodox Jews at that time certainly did not regard Christianity as in any way um, acceptable. They regarded it as idolatrous because it worshipped the, the 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 Messiah Jesus. They saw it as an abomination, as a as a, a false religion. I mean, that's what they said. So yeah. this is kind of uh, wishful thinking, really, on his part. Yeah. And what's interesting here, again, is this kind of conflict between um, trying to have this Hebrew biblical history recreated, yeah. while at the same time holding to some prejudices uh, against the Jews, and trying to kind of reconcile these two. So how do we do that? Well, let's hope that they can actually go back to Palestine, take care, take, take control of it. But at the same time, they can't really stay the Jews that we know them. We don't like them the way they are. Let them change. Their character has to change and their beliefs, of course. That would be a really good dream, isn't it? Yes. He's a founding, founding <laughs> father. He's a brilliant, isn't he? I mean, he found a nation. Come on, can't he do that? He can't yeah. certainly. But then uh, John Adams wasn't the only Zionist. He, I think this is the oldest reference uh, I could find. Maybe others might um, be able to find something, but because we're talking founding fathers and presidents, yeah. and I would like now to give some quotes from other presidents, Oh yeah. since we're into it, we might as well, yes. just to conclude, because we don't want to let uh, leave anybody out. They would think that, you know, we let them down. We're gonna mention them all, or some of them at least. So here are some, a list of Zionist presidents. So this is Abraham Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, 1863, halfway through his presidency. And he said, um, he was uh, responding, I think, um, at the time uh, to a Zionist. And he said, restoring the Jews to their national home in Palestine is a noble dream and one shared by many Americans. And then we have Theodore Roosevelt. I think I'm not sure the date exactly, but I think in around 1918 or so, because he died early 1919. And he's talking about the end of the, I think, the, or towards the end of the First World War. And he says, Palestine must be made a Jewish state. Why would somebody sit in there, end of the world, would want that difficult? Okay. And then uh, Woodrow Wilson, um, 1919, I'm moreover persuaded, and he's talking to the Jewish leaders in the US. And he says, I'm all, uh, moreover persuaded that the allied nations with the fullest concurrence of our own government and people are agreed that in Palestine should be laid the foundations of a Jewish commonwealth. And then um, one of from Harry Truman, 1945. This comes from um, um, a news conference where he says, we want uh, to let as many of the Jews into Palestine as it is uh, possible. Now, so as you can see, um, this the, we're not talking about a one-off instance or one particular leader. This is uh, consistently the position of America over the centuries on the creation or recreation of Israel uh, in Palestine. Mm -hmm. uh, the source is completely and utterly the origin is religious. It had nothing to do with any later political uh, benefits as absolutely none. But it did, of course, ultimately became about other interests, of course, mm -hmm. but not not when it started. I would like to discuss a little bit a concept which I consider to be a misnomer that's used at times and they call it Jewish supremacy. 
and the, it's it's a misnomer and the way be, because first of all not all jews believe in that believe that the jews are superior and because it's really even those who believe in that concept are limited in terms of what they can do uh, and it in in how to impact the lives uh, of others um this the the issue with the what led to the creation of if israel wasn't something that was triggered by what is called as jewish supremacy it was triggered by american supremacy jewish supremacy if it exists at all is just a a tool used but even if even if and that's very important even if the jews did not want to go to back to palestine the americans would have found a way to send them back because they needed them there because mm -hmm. going back there is ultimately what what uh, the ultimate confirmation of the self image that uh, americans uh, have the other thing is the jews did not invite americans to steal their self image the jews did not tell americans come have a look at hebrew bible it's really good help us go there and no no that no 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 this happened that was a, an enterprise started by americans completely mm. on their own and let's not forget of course while this was happening the jews were experiencing anti-semitism in america so it's not like that they had it um, you know they were completely uh, looked after by the americans um, the americans were more keen on uh, establishing israel and creating that um, hebrew uh, biblical history uh, again of course one of the absurdities we have to mention here is the this coming together of uh, christian zionist and and jewish zionist both of them link this re-establishment of israel uh, to the second to the coming of the messiah the christian uh, zionist talking about the return of jesus and then the Jewish, um, uh, obviously, Zionist talking about the coming of the Messiah. Mm. Just this unholy alliance of absur absurd alliance. Both of them have the same kind of uh, target in terms of uh, protecting and establishing Israel. But both of them are thinking completely differently. So the Jewish Messiah will come and completely refute um, Jesus and the Christian believers and the, the Christian think, well, Jesus will come back and he will show the, 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 the Jews what they think of themselves. It's just so ridiculous and absurd. But that's that's really, unfortunately, the alliance uh, the world has been uh, having to put up with. So. America needs Israel to exist for its own self-image. And um, because of that, America, the exceptional America, exceptionalized Israel and treated it in a way no other state was treated like. I'm going to pick on four themes to talk about how these were, and they're all linked to Israel, Israel the state now, and they have, how they were uh, treated differently. And I'm going to start um, with Zionism. How Zionism is now Zionism is the concept that there's a you know group of people, a nation, um, uh, people who lived two thousand years ago, whatever, on a particular 
piece of land and they should get sh they should be helped to go back there this concept has no parallel in history never had will never have it, it's, it's an impulse it's a mad it's a mad concept if, if it was to be if it were to be used anywhere else it would create create complete havoc and nobody would understand the thinking the only reason it was taken seriously because america wanted it for its own need now i'm going to show another slide here about zionism the united nations general assembly issued a resolution uh, number 1973 72 countries voted in favor of it, 35 abstained, and 32 were against it. So even if those who abstained had voted against, it would have still passed because it's more than half. And that's the United Nations, remember, General Assembly. For those who don't know, America does not have a veto right there. So it could not have stopped this resolution from being adopted. That was in 1975. Mm. But here is the important and really, really um, kind of instructive thing. This is what happened in 1991. The Bush administration in December applied pressure on various nations to have this particular resolution revoked. And it was revoked 16 years later now you will notice there is a difference in the total number of countries because in the meantime a new countries joined the un which is why there are more countries in here but look at what happened to the majorities in both cases mm -hmm. now we have 111 so 72 voted in favor and this has gone down to 25 uh two-thirds of those who voted in favor in 1975 um disappeared probably moved to the other side and they are now against now here's the question so zionism was defined as a form of racism and social racial discrimination in 75 what changed in 16 years one thing changed america became the only superpower yeah. and that meant uh, george w bush could apply all kinds of pressure on other countries and on the UN itself to change things the way you look at them. This is mad. And the reason I actually created this slide to show how it looked first and then to put next to it what happened later, just to show the falsehood we live and how reality can be just changed and manipulated. And Zionism is a form of racism and racial discrimination according to the majority of the world. And only because America decided it wouldn't have even um, an, a general assembly resolution, it applied the pressure. The uh, Soviet Union had collapsed by then. There's no balance of power, and they got away 
with what you see. In that was held, they held that uh, uh, vote again today or, or in a few weeks in 2024, uh, what the results would be. And, I, and of course, I can't know. But I would speculate that it would be much more like 1975 than 1991. In fact, I would say it would be much, much higher percentage of uh, in favours uh, now uh, and maybe only a handful that would be against that that would be my speculation yeah well i guess it would depend all also ultimately uh, paul on those um, leaders of those various countries and how they respond to pressure because america now can pull the plug on anybody they control the economy they control all kinds but obviously we know how people think and when we say people we don't talk about people there people in the west yeah. Yeah. what they've seen and what they know so if, the, if we had real democracies and re these democracies represent the uh, uh, ma majority opinion we know what this graph was uh, would, yeah. would look like yeah. but you know where we are uh, we are where we are and what's interesting here is that um just <clears throat> the there's a parallel here in that when the soviet union collapsed and then suddenly you have America having the world for itself. The same happened um, at the, uh, after the American Revolution. When uh, the, because what happened until then, the native uh, you know, inhabitants of America used to play the French and the British against each other. Um, and they were actually protected. Um, there were treaties that gave them land so the settlers could not extend beyond. When uh, the uh, revolution took place, independence happened, and the um, Treaty of Paris was signed afterwards um, in, in 1683, the, there was nothing stopping the settlers from extending. So it was a disaster. Mm -hmm. The revolution was a disaster for the native um, inhabitants of America. The same happened to people here uh, in Palestine in, in this uh, particular case. And the point here to say is that Zionism could not have become a reality on the ground had America not exceptionalized it and treated it very different from anything else. Right. I'm not aware of any other concept or form of racism and discrimination that was revisited by the UN to declassify it and normalize it. I'm not aware of any, but that's that's what happened. Mm. Let's move to another form of exceptionalization, which is the exceptionalization of anti-Semitism. Now, anti-Semitism is a form of racism. Any form of racism is detestable, should be uh, rejected, criticized, um, it's abhorrent and it's only right to call it out but it's it's in the same way it's right to call it out it's completely wrong to exceptionalize it any form of racism is harmful and harmful to everybody if i make just a quick comparison islamophobia is a form of racism and a lot of people suffer from it of course in terms of sheer numbers more people suffer from Islamophobia, suffer um, victimized by Islamophobia than anti-Semitism just because of the number of Muslims, number of Jews. Mm -hmm. In fact, there are huge and whole communities in the world 
uh, that are being victimized because they are Muslims. And uh, we know of the Rohingya, uh, we know of uh, Muslims in China, India, other places. Um, so the point here is that um, any form of racism, is, I'm not in favor of exceptionalizing any one form of racism. They all should be objected to, banned, treated equally because they are just harmful harmful ideologies and they should not be treated differently because when were they treated differently we are indirectly allowing and tolerating the other form of racism that is not taken as seriously mm -hmm. that's what's been happening here and what's interesting uh, just mention a couple of historical fact about anti-semitism this term uh, was uh, coined in 1860 by um, um an austrian uh, Jewish scholar, um, Stein, I think his name is, uh, I've got it here, Moritz Steinschneider. And um, obviously he used it uh, to refer to the discrimination against the Jews. I have no idea why he came up with this particular term, mm. anti-Semitism. And of course it was then picked up, reused in about 20 years afterwards um, by somebody called Wilhelm Ma, who's a German agitator and published somebody who's obviously anti-Semitic himself, uh, and they used it in a derogatory way, etc., against the Jews in 1819 in the pamphlet uh, he published then. But was originally uh, coined actually by a Jewish person. And um, what's interesting is that, as a historical fact, is that it's derived, of course, of the name Shem, uh, which is the uh, uh, older, oldest son of Noah. Uh, and uh, so it is very different. So Arabs, who obviously, like myself, um, who are descended from Ishmael, um, uh, then ultimately also are Semite. We are all Semites. But if somebody um, discriminates against me as a Semite, that discrimination is not called anti-Semitic, anti-Semitism. I have no idea. I'm a Semite, but I don't know why that is the case. I'm just sharing a simple piece of information. I don't think anybody actually can explain how we came to this situation where anti-Semitism is. I don't know whether Paul, you have anything to say about that. I don't know. Actually, I don't understand it. No, I, the whole thing is extremely controversial. I, I, in my view, is certainly in Western Europe, the term anti-Semitism now is basically... Uh, employed to criticize anyone who criticizes the state of Israel in the Middle East, their policies, their actions. And so it's it's used as a way of silencing pro Palestinian protest. And when you, when you, I've noticed recently when the media is saying, you know, there'd be a huge spike of anti-Semitic attacks in Britain, and they never go into any detail about what that means. And I'm very suspicious that this is simply a huge increase in pro-Palestinian views being voiced which are by definition according to this new understanding of uh, the concept or the term anti-semitism is anti-semitic and and uh, i think this is so it actually completely discredits the term because if if i support the palestinian existence and right to uh survive and so on that will be labeled as anti-semitic so i'm a horrible anti-jewish i mean it's ridiculous it's an absurd Travesty. Um, so the, the term has been completely destroyed, unfortunately, by the very people who want to protect Jews against prejudice. Yeah. Um, and, and it's a very uh, ugly 
and frankly bizarre situation we find ourselves in that when you that the, the term has been completely evacuated of any serious meaning and the in the correct sense of people who are anti a, a race or religious group for irrational reasons for phobic reasons that, that's not the case anymore um no, no. we've all been accused of anti-semitism simply supporting justice of Palestine. how absurd is that so the term has been weaponized by zionists to uh basically demonize criticism of israel so the term is completely discredited in my view but in the media it's still the weapon of choice and it has it's it's, it's locked down now as as completely uh untouchable you can't criticize this concept anymore and, and that creates a terrible um uh, co uh conflict within society i think yeah i think so yeah, I mean, historically speaking, it's really wrong. Anti-Semitism is wrong on so many ways. First of all, it's wrong because it's a form of racism as in against a particular group of people. So it's wrong. It's wrong because also it treats the Jewish, uh, the Jews as if they are a race. And, and obviously it's a, it's, a, it's a faith, it's a religion, it's not a race. And also it's wrong historically because it kind of hijacks the name Shem, and applies it to only one uh, descendant uh, of of him. Yeah. So yeah. all in all, it's it's really wrong. And um, but it has been exceptionalized as well, uh, as I mentioned. And this is again American exceptionalism being applied there. Um, without the U.S., that would not have happened. Moving on to another equally kind of um, very close subject, and again uh, comes up always every time the name. Israel is mentioned, which is the Holocaust. And of course, it's a terrible episode in, in human history uh, that millions of the Jews had to suffer uh, the Holocaust. And, um, and it's rightly used to remind people of what human beings can do to fellow human beings under all kinds of pretexts. But it's completely wrong to abuse it to justify Zionism and to actually for political reasons, such as defending the occupation of Palestine. The Holocaust and its victims have nothing to do with that. In fact, uh, probably you're aware of this, Paul, and many um, victims of the Holocaust whose parents actually perished in the Holocaust came out against what goes on in Palestine. And again, some of them actually against the concept of Zionism itself. Yet, the moment you talk about it, the connection is established as if because uh, the Holocaust took place, then we can do whatever uh, under that pretext, take over Palestine, treat the Palestinians the way the Israelis want, because of the Holocaust. A lot of these people had actually not, well, they have some connection with the Holocaust, but not direct connection. The only connection to genocide they have is the connection they have to the genocide in Palestine. Mm -hmm. That's what it is. And the, the other side of, of um, the issue of the Holocaust here is the exceptionalizing of the Holocaust in terms of how it is treated as a unique special genocide. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Every genocide is genocide. Every life is worth exactly uh, any other life. Um, there are lots of countries now where uh, laws have been introduced against those who deny the Holocaust. As a historian, I think it's insane to deny the Holocaust. 
But, oh, but I, think, I think, I mean, a lot of these so-called alleged uh, Holocaust deniers are not really Holocaust deniers in the sense of denying the Holocaust. <laughs> Paradoxically, you think that's what they were believing. To even question, say, uh, the figure of six million no. Jews dying in the Holocaust. Say you believe on your assessment of the evidence, it was five million Jews. That's Holocaust denial. I mean, it really is. If you question anything of the narrative at all, the magnitude of it, for example, um, you are denying the Holocaust. So it, it's a very blunt weapon <clears throat> that basically uh, protects any critical evaluation or any difference of opinion, actually. Some countries, uh, Paul, some countries uh, use in the law, in their law, deny or minimize to cover the situations you're talking about. Right. Now, you can't say anything. Effectively, no. if, if you minimize, do, it's a, a very subjective. What do you mean? What does one mean by minimize? I mean, you know, how long is a piece of string? But, but I, I've noticed this when you actually when you actually drill down into accusations of Holocaust denial. On, on there are some well-known certain historians who uh, who have done this. When you actually drill down, there's a British historian, famously, I forget his his name. Um, he's an expert on German history. He's still alive. I don't know. Um, is he David? Uh... I might have come across his yeah name. I, I, can't, I can't remember his name but um anyway he, he, he's, he was imprisoned in austria yes him yeah, yes i can't remember his, his name was he's regularly accused and has been accused by courts of holocaust denial but actually if you drill down into what he's actually said and you can hear him on youtube i mean he's not hiding his views he doesn't deny the holocaust but he denies aspect he might deny uh, about the the functionality of Auschwitz, for example, or this, he qu he'll quibble over important things, but he does state that uh, actually that the Nazis did gas juice, and so he's yeah. not denying it. Um, but 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 for him, he's been labelled this, but it's very inaccurate because um, it's not what he's not saying the Holocaust didn't happen, uh, and he, he's come under criticism from actual Nazis for saying that because because they don't believe it happened at all. Um, anyway. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I don't know the details of what he said, but you're right. I would not be surprised that a lot of these de supposedly deniers, what they do, probably they question certain aspects, but they don't deny uh, the, the, what happened uh, as such. And there are no That's other, I mean, the, obviously some of these laws that covered the Holocaust are general laws. So they are not really David specific. Irving. So I'm talking about David. David, it's, Irving, it's David yeah. Irving. Sorry, Irving. Yeah, that's, that's uh, he's a British. Uh, yeah. uh, he's he's you know he's written some amazing well the, the highly regarded books or were regarded highly regarded books on Germany. But you know he he's accused of being a Holocaust denier, but he actually technically he isn't. If you actually listen to what he says himself, which you can do, but you really have to dig hard to find it there because his stuff is widely banned on, on online. Um, anyway, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, yeah, no, that's all right. Yeah. And um, so uh, some of these kind of legislations uh, are general, so they're not specifically about the Holocaust, but. Mm they usually apply, they are rarely applied to any other genocide. I haven't heard anybody being imprisoned for saying that the French did not kill one million Algerians. And if anybody says that, they are absolutely fine. If you find genocide documented on YouTube and on social media and credit to Israel, they have provided us with a lot of documentation and a lot of people deny that. They see it, they deny it, they're absolutely fine. There's nothing they they should fear. But if somebody says something, as you say, not even denying the Holocaust, then they could be actually uh, prosecuted uh, and put in jail. That is a form of exceptionalization that mm -hmm. also comes uh, from America. Without America, 
an exceptional America that would not have happened. And um, of course, ultimately, the, this leads me to the, the exceptional, exceptionalization of Israel it, itself. You mentioned um, earlier that if you criticize Israel, I think there's, there are certain countries where they're try, trying to introduce, introduce laws whereby if you criticize Israel, you're actually labeled as anti-Semitic or you're actually breaking the law. It's, it's mad. I mean, this is happening in France, at least I know. France, uh, the secular country, for whatever reason, when it comes to uh, Israel, it's not the secular country we know. Yeah. Israel protecting, actually, just remember, we're not talking about somebody uh, going there to fight against Israel, because, by the way, a lot of people go from the West to fight with Israel mm -hmm. against the Palestinians. That's absolutely fine. Don't worry about that. Mm -hmm. And we're not talking about any violence, any form, just people criticizing Israel, they're being threatened, I think, with the, if the, I don't know, the uh, bill uh, passes with imprisonment or 20,000 euros uh, fine or something along these lines, whether it's going to come become a law or not. The fact that it's being considered is significant. Now, I haven't heard anybody saying, well, uh, if you criticize Saudi Arabia, you're Islamophobic or we're going to put you in a prison. If anything, you're likely actually to get a lot of visits on your website and you'll be invited on all kinds of shows because you are criticizing uh, uh, Saudi Arabia. They're, they have no democracy. We have the democracy. We know what kind of democracy. And um, so here you have it. Israel is as um, exceptionalized as the Holocaust, as anti-Semitism, as uh, uh, Zionism. And uh, this brings me really to, the, to conclude um, what I had to say. And just to recap, Israel is, looks powerful and a competent, capable country. It is not. Israel is a facade. When we talk about Israel, it's right to mention Israel because it's the direct aggressor, the state, the nation that's committing the genocide, the masculine, the, all of the ethnic cleansing. But Israel really, really, even now, is nothing other than a tool in the hands of America. If we go back all the way to where it all started, it started with self-image, this faith in American exceptionalism that needed to be affirmed, and it, was, and it was, had to be affirmed, and to be affirmed, uh, Israel uh, had to be established and to be defended. As we speak now, uh, weapons are being shipped from America uh, to the from US to the to Israel yep. uh, to kill civilians. No, there's no other way of putting it, just to mm -hmm. kill civilians. We know that they know that. Uh, so Israel, despite its might, military might, and it's really powerful, it's nothing. Its existence is is because of America. Israel needs America to exist, and America needs Israel to exist, the two mm. of them for different reasons. Israel is not a fulfillment of a Hebrew, the Hebrew, the Bible, a biblical prophecy. Israel is the fulfillment of uh, uh, America's self-image, its belief, its an exceptionalism. It's been the new Israel, the new chosen uh, of God. Um, American exceptionalism, chosenness, etc., 
is really America is exceptional, but the, it's exceptional in the sense that it's an exceptional danger. Mm. I don't think the world has ever seen the likes of. And if we measure it in terms of victims, capabilities, and going forward, and the duration over which it sustained itself, mm -hmm. it is exceptional, but in terms of danger. Yeah, yeah. well, extraordinary. Thank you so much uh, indeed for that uh, extremely insightful and educational uh, context that we really need to understand what's going on. Uh, and. Uh, with American exceptionalism and uh, extremely interesting indeed. And I, I really appreciate the way you root your comments and observations in uh, verifiable, checkable sources. Uh, it's not, you're not just giving speculation, you're, you're rooting it in um, quotes and, uh, and texts that we can reference and check for ourselves. Um, so thank you very much indeed. And um, inshallah, um, we will see you next time. Thank you. Asalaamu Alaikum. Alaikum when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.